the means of learning are abundant. The desire to learn is scarce. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sassen behind the scenes. This quote leads us to our guest today, Dr. Aaron Quinn. I've seen Dr. Quinn's work through Austin Einhorn, our previous guest, uh, his Instagram page, and I've been fascinated with his work and what he's been doing with athletes. And I got really excited when we were able to get him onto this podcast and it lived up to the expectations. Today, we dove into his approach of teaching and lessons and how we can create awareness around movement for our athletes, why there are disconnects, and how he takes his background of the neurological approach to training and his work with people that had neurological diseases and the basics and how he applies that with sports performance and athletes that that are trying to level up rather than just trying to make the next step. How can we create a higher performing athlete? One of the quotes he says in this podcast is the same thing that keeps you from throwing harder is the same thing that's causing pain in that elbow. And if we dive down to the root cause of that, we'll not only increase performance, but we'll take away the pain associated with the issue that you're having. Before we get started with our podcast, before we hit that intro music, I just wanted to take the time to let you guys know about the Yoakum Strength Insider. One of the biggest questions I get after listening to this podcast is, all right, you have all these awesome ideas about play. You have all these awesome ideas about movement and how we implement it into a training program. Now, what does that look like in your full program? What do your full programs look like? How do you do this? You, you have all these cool ideas. What does it actually look like? And that's what the Yoakum Strength Insider does. The Yoakum Strength Insider is an app built out by me that grants you a full access pass to what training with me in person would look like. All of your programming, all of your meal planning, nutrition guidelines, video access to everything, and the ability to have access to our instant messaging app on the app. Everything is included. We work with athletes and washed up movers trying to reach their peak performance, trying to level up, trying to do some of the things, trying to reach a different level of performance, trying to feel better, move better, lift more, reach new levels of what your body is capable of doing. That's what the Oakham Strength Insider is for. And if you guys use podcast 25, all lowercase, you guys will get 25% off your first program, your first three weeks of training with us. It'll help support the podcast. It'll help fuel everything that we're doing. And you'll get the best results in a program of your life. I promise you that. Thank you guys for listening. Hit the intro music. Let's do this. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite level guests to unravel what high performance really is. Well, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, so we just got done chatting. Um, you might possibly have the coolest backstory that we, we, we've ever gone over so far. Just You just mentioned you brought up your story through here. But do you want to tell the listeners kind of a little bit about yourself, kind of where you're at now and the journey to get to where you're at now and the thought processes that has brought about? Yeah, so it's been a, it's been a long run. I didn't even think about this was... Uh, I come from a medical family. So my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse. Um, my oldest brother's a speech therapist. Um, and then my middle brother's an FBI agent. So he's like the black sheep. He's kind of weirdo. <laughs> um, uh, and we, so I always, when I was younger, I was always interested in the body, interested in the medical field. I thought I was going to be a doctor. Um, went through undergrad, did all the MCAT prep. And then like my spring term, right before I was going to graduate, I was like, I don't want to be a doctor and uh, hit a little crossroads there. Um, and one of my friends, she said, she thought, I'm like, you would like being a PT. I think you would enjoy that. So I volunteered at a clinic, watched a little bit of it. Uh, and I decided like, yeah, that's what I want to do. And I had, at the time I was coaching uh, football at high school level throughout undergrad. Um, had always been kind of, teaching like movement or be interested in movement or especially like the analytical side of it. Uh, and so I shifted gears and, and tried to get into PT school, which I was able to do. And my whole thought during process during that time is like, I'll go into athletics. That's what I want to do. Um, the other stuff I'll just learn about, but then I'll, I'll go into athletics. And then I was in graduate school and I did my first like neurological uh, class and rotation me working with people who had strokes or spinal cord injuries or um, brain injuries. And it shifted my perspective completely because, um, you know, I was 
grew up in the football world, played basketball and football mainly. Did a lot of the meathead workouts, right? Like lift heavy, power, like power cleans, uh, you know, heavier you go, the better. And not really looking at how am I improving myself as a mover, which looking back, I was not. So I got stronger, but I was not making myself a better athlete. Um, maybe just by pure will, I got more athletic, but and and time. But I think I moved better when I was wasn't lifting weights as much. Um, so I started looking at the neurological world and got really interested in that. Uh, and so after grad school, I did a nine month residency uh, and in Vallejo, which was uh, proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, which is PNF for short. And what most people know about PNF is uh, contract, relax, stretching, which is like such a small piece of the puzzle. It's like saying you know how to change a tire and therefore you're a mechanic. Uh, so, uh, in turn, I was working with people who had primarily brain injuries or strokes and, and um, for nine months there, got mentored by incredible therapists, uh, 20 plus years experience, have taught around the world. And, and I started looking at uh, how people move from a developmental standpoint. So if you take a person who can't walk from their brain injury, how do you get that person to start organizing themselves differently? How do you help them uh, really make sense of uh, nonsense in a sense? Or uh, people, we get tons of stimulus all the time and we filter out a lot of that. So if you have a brain injury, you tend not to be able to filter out all the different uh, activities going on. For, for example, right now I'm talking with you, but there's light coming in from the window, there's maybe sounds from outside, there's temperatures, all, all the uh, changes in the air, all these things are happening. Our brains filters those out so that we can focus on what's, uh, what is at hand. And with a person that's had a brain injury, that becomes a lot more difficult. So how do you, how do you get through to that person? How do you help them start putting pieces together uh, to start even rolling over, sitting up, walking? And for, for me, I started looking at athletics isn't really any different. It's just at higher speeds, more, you know, more force, but the learning process isn't different. And so I started thinking about how can I take an athlete that's still interested in athletics? How can I get them the awareness of the missing piece that they have and, and make them potentially aware of habits that they, they do that they're, that isn't in the forefront and maybe holding them back. Um, so I did neurological rehab for about five years. And during that time, I was also getting trained in a method similar to Feldenkrais method. Did that as a four and a half year training. And then from there, uh, eventually moved to Santa Cruz. Um, I met Austin Einhorn, who you interviewed a while back. Uh, and then we, we teamed up together to start uh, working at, I joined the Matt Piros and we started working with athletes from there. Um, and I took my perspective of working with, you know, pretty low, potentially what people say is low functioning, low level, but using those principles I learned to help someone who had a brain injury or help someone who had a stroke and then starting to apply that to, um, an athletic field. So complete paradigm shift from, you know, get in the gym, do three sets of 10 of squats, three sets of 10 of lunges, right. Do some power cleans all to go on like, well, what, how can we get someone to become aware of activities when they're doing their squats or cleans or when they're playing their sport, how can I make them, uh, potentially move differently and more efficient patterns. It's more about, so look at the whole person instead of just the muscles or, and probably more importantly is getting people to connect over correcting issues. And this is where I, I'm really interested because it's like, you almost, it was almost forced you, your, your, your pathway to the, the athlete back to the athletic field. So you start athletic field, you went away and then you went back to the athletic field, almost forced you go to go back to the real fundamental basics of human movement. How can we get this person to move? And in a lot of times we are blessed as strength coaches with just, I mean, they move like, and, and uh, the higher up athletes you work with, the better they just do things. And we're never really going back to the basics of these things. We're never looking at it because we're just seeing phenomenal outputs in front of us because this athlete already has that. And it almost forces you to go back to those basics. And something that kind of triggered and made me think of this is like, what is causing the disconnect? So when somebody has the disease or 
whatever the issue is where they they have to learn how to walk again. And that's who you're working with. We, we like, you can kind of understand where that issue is coming from, but where are these disconnects coming from an athlete that should be functioning? Like per, if you think about like evolutionary wise, like that athlete should be functioning, they should have the connections. Where are these disconnects that you're seeing with these athletes coming from? Why are they coming to you with these with these issues and with this disconnect, like, where is that coming from? Is it the, the, the four strength conditioning aspects of it or, or why are we having these issues? Yeah. And that's a, uh, like the million dollar question, right? So when I'm working with someone, I'm always kind of, I tell them I'm, I have a working theory of what potentially is going on and we will keep exploring what, why you have that level output or what, why you do this. Um, it could be a variety of reasons. They could, could be from an injury. Right. It could be from someone told them to do this. Um, they read it in a magazine. Uh, maybe they, you know, some athletes, they didn't crawl very much. So I was working with a runner who had a lot of uh, foot issues. And I, I looked at how his back was organized and I put him in, uh, you know, crawling positions in a bear crawl. And he really struggled with that. And I just kept on asking questions, found out he, his parents were like, oh yeah, you crawled for like a couple of weeks and he started walking. <laughs> so you think, well, that's, that's fine. You know, like that worked out for him. He's obviously doing things well, but maybe he's missing a component there. And that was just from his, uh, his developmental standpoint. So we went back and did some more crawling variations of that, which helped his foot because it's, uh, for me, crawling is much different than running. It's the same pattern. So in turn, I guess, again, going back to, I go, what, if they're missing something, can I bring them back to how we learn to move in the first place, which is kids learn to move on their back, on the ground, learning how to control against gravity, learning how to roll, learning how to sit up, learning how to crawl. All that starts really low um, in the gravitational field. But in turn, I can take away that force of going against gravity and I can up their awareness level. So I take stuff away, but I ask a lot more cognitively. Um, Example would be if, you know, in the middle of the day, if the sun's shining and I turn on a flashlight, you're not going to notice the difference of uh, light. It's just too big, a, too big a stimulus, too uh, small of a change. If it was pitch dark and I turn a flashlight on, you're going to notice that difference. So I take away some distractions. I take away some gravity field or even um, I might stop talking as much. I start using my hands more. And let them start up in their awareness at a level where they can actually make a change compared to at like such a high speed where the brain has to go to what it already knows. And with this, so you're, t- you're bringing them back. And we talk about this a lot on this podcast. So I love that you bring this up because we have all of our football guys. Um, we've, we're starting to get them to crawl. We're starting to get them to roll. We're starting to get them to climb. And you really get to see a lot of things exposed. Um, mm. and- You'll see some athletes that are phenomenal movers on the football field that can't do it at all. Uh, you'll see some athletes that are bad movers and can't do it. Or you'll, and you just see these, some of these connections, you start to make sense with it. When you, you talk about bringing awareness to these, to these issues, what is it? Is it individualized? Is it the person like, does the person always have to come to you with a symptom of like, Hey, hip is bothering me. Uh, and then you, 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 you approach them. We were working with the hip. We're going to draw awareness to that. Or is it, so we have an athlete that isn't having symptoms yet, but you can, you, you like, how are you approaching an athlete that doesn't have the symptoms yet and is coming to you just to increase performance just to, cause I know you mentioned, you said, uh, the quote is like talking about how the same thing that's keeping you from throwing faster is the same thing that will cause that elbow pain. When you have an athlete that isn't showing the symptoms of pain yet how are you approaching that athlete and drawing the awareness to what the issue possibly could be yeah so there's going to be it's all a spectrum so i get being having physical therapy background i get a lot of people are coming to me when they're in pain um hope hopefully i'm going to keep gathering more people are coming just for performance because uh it's easier to a pound of or ounce of prevention is better than a pound of uh, recovery uh but i can get i just look at what's a if they're in pain, it's a matter of how much load am I going to put them on? All right. So how much can their tissue tolerate? Use an example of a thrower, right? So if, yeah, if their elbows hurt them when they're throwing, it's probably the same reason why they're hovering in the mid eighties when they want to be in the, you know, the nineties. I will, it will be individualized because I, I, I will look at their movement signature. So what's their sport that they're trying to improve on? How do they move? What relationships are well-developed in them? What relationships may be lacking and injuries always 
uh, a probability thing. So I don't view any movement as bad or good. It's all context related. But there are certain movements, if you do more often, likelihood of injury goes up. If you take a squat, for example, your knee's going in you're, when you're squatting heavy, probably not a great idea. Your ability to let your knee go in, very useful if you, if someone's about to kick your knee, you dive into valgus so you don't get kicked in the knee, very useful movement, right? So it doesn't matter, like the knee going to valgus isn't necessarily bad. The now, what are we doing is potentially bad or good. Uh, so I will, when I work with someone, it's a lot of gathering information right away. Um, and I continue to gather information. So any sort of treatment or any sort of intervention is, is, uh, is an assessment as well. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. So you, you, you talk about gathering information. Um, is that, so we, we, I, I talk about it a lot with my athletes, but it's like, they don't, you're watching an athlete move and he, let's say he doesn't have a movement option. He doesn't have a tool. So like maybe it is a knee valgus. He, he's not able to actually get into that because he's externally rotated his entire life because he's been told to do that in his squats. Is it something like that? Or are you like, once you see something like that, how are you kind of diving into an athlete like that? I, I just bring that up because football guys, you see it a lot is mm. it's been naturally they, 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 they were able to go into Vegas and they were told it was super, super bad. So now you have athletes that like can't do it at all. And now they don't have the option, like you said, to even do it. And it's good for when we're squatting and you don't want to go into knee Vegas, but now you have other movements where that would probably help you a lot to have that option. And now you don't have that. Uh, is that what you mean by gathering information? And then what's your kind of approach once you see something like that? Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm glad you bring up options. So I'm like, what I'm trying to create is an, an option for the person, option for their brain, more, more or less. Uh, so if I say, we'll keep using knee valgus as an example, I, get, I start, I see that. Maybe I ask them when they're walking, go upstairs or squatting. Uh, I can, you know, whatever activity I'm watching them move. And I keep seeing the same pattern show up. Now I just go, I, in my head, I go, why is that? And is it, um, do they just not know? So you can ask them, can you bring your knee in? Maybe they, maybe they just don't, they are, they're been told that's not a good thing to do. Um, and then we have that conversation about good movements and bad movements and how there's, it's all context dependent. Uh, maybe it's something uh, from a joint level. So maybe their hip is actually stiff. Now, if I look at, you know, stiff in quotes, I, uh, I start wondering, How's that hip organized to the low back, to the rib cage, to the ankle? So I, I, if I even if they come in, say knee pain or hip pain, I'm looking at the whole body, and that may be through me moving them passively through. Uh, I could have I could have them actively do a movement, or I may put them in position like a 90-90 side sitting and see how their hip responds. And then again, I'm looking at how their rib cage moves. Uh, most often, thing I correct on people is how they're stabilizing their spine. Um, I think that's probably one of the worst things we do as a society is uh, tell people to potentially pull on their stomach, um, engage the core, uh, or when people are squatting, like squeeze the glutes. I mean, I know I've told all this stuff in the past. Hopefully, it's diminishing a little bit. But for me, uh, a stable trunk is one that's actually relaxed and can hold the position with minimal force. So using like children, for example, I've never seen a kid outside a typically developing kid pull their stomach in. I never seen a gorilla pull their stomach in. I never seen a lion pull their stomach in. Um, but we tell uh good posture in, in at least in America is holding stomach, shoulders back and turn, they're actually stabilizing their spine inefficiently against nature. So it's culturally acceptable, but it's not uh evolutionarily acceptable. And that will create a cascade of events. And that's probably the place where I start initially is like, how are they stabilizing their spine? And with that, so you talk about, because I've heard this brought up a bunch of times too. Um, and let's say, uh, so you want the kind of the, the options too. So you, you, you're going to load up that spine. Um, one, are you staying like, because this is something that I, I thought about too, before I was told to brace my, like brace my core when I squat or did any of that. Like I never thought about that. I never had any awareness to it. And I would just squat and I would do up and down. And I had no problem. And then I was told when I got to college, like I, I need to brace as hard as possible doing any lift and like squeeze <laughs> and do everything. And then as soon as I started doing that, like everything just, I mean, it was that, it was that combination with, um, always driving my knees out as hard as possible during the squat or during the squats. And those two things, it just always made the movement feel so awkward when I was like, Oh, I just don't know the movement well enough. I don't know the movement well enough. 
what is kind of that approach now to uh, you're trying to organize the spine in like that loaded position. How are you, how are you doing that with your athletes? Is it just like, uh, if they're drawing awareness, like if they already know this, is what I'm trying to think about, there's two ways. Cause you could have the athlete that has no understanding of the, the brace and they're probably just going to naturally go through it. And that's probably honestly better for you to work with than the athlete that has all these ideas and knowledge in their head. Then are you just talking to them about those ideas or are you trying to show them? Like, what are your kind of cues when they're going through these sessions, that type of stuff? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask them to do what they do already and make it really clear. So if they are used to, let's say they were got told pull belly buttons to the spine. Um, I'm going to ask them to do it and, and we're going to go through a series of activities so they feel what that's like, or I'll ask, or ideally they come with to me, like with an issue that they have. So, um, I was working with a baseball player recently, a pitcher, and he talked about his hips feel pretty tight. I mean, he has a hard time opening up towards a home plate. So his, his lead foot being his left foot ends up on the third base side where ideally it would open up more towards the first base side. He's a right-handed pitcher. So, he, but he like, he tries to get there. His hip feels like it locks up. He's, he then ends up having like side bend over, over that left side and, and drag his elbow through space instead of being externally rotated, which has put a lot of stress on his, uh, his inside elbow. Uh, so I asked him like, let's see how you stabilize your spine. Let's see like what, what's good core to you, you know? And for him, it was tightening up, pulling in and which made him rectus abdominis, dominant and internal obliques. I see I would, on where his, where I'm looking for more of like a cylinder throughout the, the trunk, he was having divots for his external obliques and more or less transverse dominus. I'm simplifying a little bit, but in turn, so we went on his back and I said, Hey, why don't you just, just don't let your spine move and lift your leg up and to see what happens. And he had, I was like, just keep it, you know, keep a full cylinder like a baby. And then we started, he was like, well, he's like, I don't feel it so much in my hip. I don't feel so much in my hip flexor. So then we went into like, let's get you on hands and knees. Let's do the same thing. Let's do in crawling. Let's do in half kneeling. Let's do in side sitting. Let's do in standing. Let's go through, um, what are, uh, other exercises we want to go through. Uh, and then in turn, I would go pull your stomach in. Give me like what you normally do. Give me now, give me the new one. And as soon as he started going back to his old ways, he's like, man, I could feel all those areas that hurt my low back, my hip flexors that constantly feel tight. I feel like I need to stretch. I'm just not stretching enough. He's like, those don't feel so tight. So that that's where I go. Can I give them the different again? Perception of difference is most important for me. And then can we do that through multiple things so that he can, he can own or not necessarily own the movement and own the difference because the brain's idea is perception of difference. Well, I think this transitions really well into what I want to talk to you about is like you in multiple posts and your, um, your Instagram bio is it's like, you talk about being a teacher and you, you talk mm -hmm. about, you, you said, even before this podcast, like you create lessons, not sessions, not like workouts, but you, you create lessons. And that's something that I wanted to dive into with you is like in the football world, and a lot of the strength conditioning world, it's like, we want, we want to create out outputs and we want to create stronger and we want to create bigger. And the more I look at it, the more I'm like, we, we should be creating learners, like students and lovers of movement and skill acquisition and learning these things. And like, I really feel like it should be more and coaches can be a term that works with this, but in the sense of like, we should be teaching more, we should be teaching in a sense of where we're, we're creating a love for movement, a love for this skill acquisition and creating the environments that allow you to do so. And that's where I think it's a really cool, you, you laid out your process of, this is kind of how you built out your learning environment for them to learn the skill that you wanted them to do. Um, and you, you talked about all these different ways to do it because when you look at it, like learning is super messy and kind of your approach to being a teacher and dealing with how messy learning really is. Yeah, uh, so I have a, my daughter is about 10 months old right now. Um, which she's been a great teacher for me watching how much she moves, how much she tries different things. Some of it's just random movement, um, spontaneous movement, but each time she does something new or kids in general do something new, it's by accident. They meant to do one thing. They meant to do a, and then B emerges. And then they, they laugh or they get actually a lot of times they get scared because they go like, Whoa, what, what just happened? So the first time my daughter pulled herself up, um, 
on furniture. She actually got scared because she didn't mean to pull herself up. She was just moving. So it was really messy. And then next time she pulled herself up, she was like, started laughing third time. Now she just cruises everywhere. Um, so if you look at how we originally move, we, everything we did was by accident. So it is really messy. We, we get a ton of excitement. Our brain, our brain fires a bunch of uh, neurons. And then we start pruning those back into more and more focused movement. So our, our brains are information machines. Our bodies are based off the world of physics, but our brain's an information machine. So if I can give the person more information, I can make them and get them better at learning something, actually just get better at learning anything then they will, they will figure out the best movement for themselves, right? Because there, there's bandwidth within anyone, right? Um, no one moves exactly the same. You look at, we'll take football example, like uh, there are better throwing mechanics for quarterbacks, but, you know, Mahomes plays a little different than Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers plays a little different than, than those two. Um, and they're all very effective. So my goal is to actually make them really good perceivers of differences let them kind of figure it out. And um, the thing I, the quote I use is like, I always want to be useful, but not necessary. So if I'm feeding them information all the time, what's going to happen when they get to game day, when they don't have a coach in their ear, what's going to happen when they're say, I'm working with um, an athlete and they go off to college. What's going to happen when they're out there? Are they going to just, for your example, right? Get told, Hey, pull your stomach in, you know, do all your, do all this. Like where you start going, like, man, my squats feel weird. Um, not that I want them to not listen to their coaches. They should listen to their coaches, but maybe make them a little bit more self-reliant going like, well, if this feels weird, I know what a good squat feels like. And I, and maybe I'll give them an opportunity to experiment a little bit. So they go, this doesn't work for me. And then can I find a little different, slightly different path that allows me to keep making progress? I, I freaking love that. I, I'm geeking out right now about that, that kind of approach is like just feeding them information and then seeing what they do with that information, how they learn from that information. And then I think that sets up you as a, as a teacher, uh, your next lesson, like, all right, they perceive this information this way. Uh, and it, it exposed this weakness, it exposed that kink, whatever it exposed. Now, maybe we create another lesson plan to kind of hopefully give them more information on those type of things. And that's something I'm interested in is your kind of your lesson plan. I'm taking your lesson approach and expanding mm -hmm. like yeah. how you, um, how you build out your lessons, uh, how you adapt your lessons, how, um, how each session is individually. And then how you kind of, I want to say program, but I don't want to really say program, but like progress the, the, the lessons themselves and kind of your process of that. Most of the time, the first thing I ask, um, is what, do, what does the athlete want to work on? Right. What's, what's important to them? Uh, I'd rather have them drive the session. And is, sorry, but, is, that, is that daily or is that like at the start, it's like, this is what you want to work on to get better holistically. Or is it every day they come in and it's like, this, this is what I want to work on today or a blend. Both. So like, what's your, let's, let's go long-term goal. What's uh, something you want to work on. I'll, I'll ask daily if, um, or I'll tell them uh, one of my athletes I worked with yesterday, he'll he text me a couple days before he's like, man, I was doing deadlifts. Something felt weird. Can we work on that? I'm like, sure, let's go for it. Right. That's important to him. It's much easier for me to go like, Hey, you want to work on your deadlift? I can, we can work around something, figure out your deadlift. Uh, instead of me going like, Hey, we should work on your deadlift. Right. It's much easier. Like the lessons easier to teach when, when the students engage. Uh, so I'll ask right away, like, Hey, what's, what do you want to work on? I'll have plans of relationships that maybe I want to establish or, or highlight to, but I will, so I'll give you just a general, I'll start something on the ground. It may be some sort of rolling, some, something more towards and lower gravitational field. Uh, that will be typically like my warm up. you know, quote unquote, warm up would be something on the ground. Um, let's get, let's use constraints of, uh, position to maybe highlight, say we're going to work on hip mobility. I may be having them roll. Uh, one of the things I love to do is have the person hold their, Say they're going to roll to their left. They're going to hold their left foot with their right hand, and they're going to try to roll to their to their left. Which now I've created a, a constraint by holding the foot at their left hip and basically uh, right shoulder are connected. And when they roll to their left, they have to now go through an external rotation on that left hip with the rib cage to figure out how to come up easily. So that that might prep them for again rotation around a fixed femur. So if we're looking at like a pitcher where a pitcher needs to be able to rotate their rib cage on a fixed leg to throw the ball harder. We're going to start rolling on the ground. Then we might get up into like a half kneeling, do something where 
they're now rot- rotating around again that hip, um, fixed femur rotating around that hip. Then we might take them up into standing, rotating around fixed femur with either some sort of resistance, maybe a band, um, you know, whatever. I might even take like a kettlebell and have them coil over that side. And then we might, then we might mimic it into some sort of throwing with like a medicine ball. And then we're going, and potentially we may have them actually throw a ball. So now we, we went from, here's this relationship on the ground. Now we're going to get you up closer and closer to your sport while the whole time I'm going like, Hey, do you see how this rolling is actually part of your throwing? You see how like when you're in half, you know, and that's part of your throwing so that they connect the dots. So it's not just an exercise. It's actually a movement relationship and makes it more salient to them. Yeah. And I think that's amazing. Like you, you have talked about multiple times, the awareness, but it's like every, every step of those ways, you're, you're transitioning that awareness of that position um, from the most basic aspect of just being on a round of rolling all the way to their sport and making that connection with them. I think that's, that has to be super powerful for the athlete themselves to be able to like make that learning process in their own head, rather than just being told to do this without any purpose or reason behind it or connection. Yeah. Then, um, then some of my favorite things are athletes will go, Hey man, I was like, I was looking at this and that I was like, and that made sense to me or like, um, that rolling thing we did the other day, you see a uh, guy with text where it's like, you see this guy doing a roundhouse kick. It's like the same thing. I'm like, yeah, well, doing a roundhouse kick or throwing a punch is actually the same rotation as throwing a ball. Right. But they, so they, that's not me prompting them. They made that, that relationship connection and that's incredibly powerful. So now they're, they're starting to look at the world a little differently from a cognitive standpoint. And then that's going to influence the rest of their body and how they move. And how are you balancing this out with the, because uh, I'm sure in the, and I want to go just a little practical sense here. If like you, you have a, if let's say you're working with college or professional athletes, you have them going to their either sport practice or their, whatever the, the college strength conditioning sessions that they have to do and getting kind of broken mm-hmm. down and focusing on not the, like the things that they're going to come to you and we're going to have to almost fix a little bit. Like, how do you balance that out? Um, is it just giving them the information and then hope like allowing them to self-regulate that sense? Are you working with them like remotely? Like what's kind of your process to balance out? Like you're, you, let's say you spend, even if it is four sessions a week with them on uh, like, maybe it's like eight hours a week with them. They have the rest of the time by themselves. Like how are you balancing out that approach of like how much time they're not with you compared to the time that they are with you? It's a really good point. So it's a very, it is a balancing act. Um, I don't want a athlete we're working with to, tell a coach, Hey, I'm not doing that because my, you know, so-and-so trainer that they don't know from Adam is telling them not to like, that is not a, uh, ideal situation and, and puts them, um, it's definitely, I'll just put this way. I would not want any of my athletes to ever do that. So if there's an activity that they do with their team and they, for, they don't like it, we try to find the value within it. Um, and what, is their movement signature? What can they work on? What can be their focus point when they're doing that activity so that they find some value from it? Uh, using a baseball example, I'm not a huge fan of reverse throws where they're, you know, typically people are in like half kneeling and they're throwing the ball behind them. Uh, it's usually used to strengthen what they say, strengthen the deaccelerators or back of the shoulder, uh, which I think it's actually, there's more risk to doing that. Um, then you're going to actually, and you're also strengthening the back of the shoulder concentrically when you throw, it's actually eccentric, uh, strengthening or eccentric strength that you need. So I don't really like reverse throws. I would never pro if I was a baseball coach or work with the team, I would never have anybody do reverse throws. Cause I think you're going to create anterior shear of the clinal humeral joint, which already happens when people throw. Um, and if we really were meant to throw backwards, uh, everybody would be throwing backwards. <laughs> we don't, you know, when we were hunting, uh, uh, you know, when we're hunting lions or hunting animals or deer, we weren't throwing spears backwards, right? <laughs> we're not, our, our eyes are forward for a reason. So, but they need to do that. Like they're going to do that with their team. So what I'll do is I'm like, don't throw the ball that hard. What time we're don't even worry about your arm. Let's think about how your rib cage is turning. So I get like, what's the thing about your chest bone opening up. So now we're working on hip shoulder separation and let the ball just go and don't worry about velocity on it. Cause it doesn't matter on reverse throw, how hard you throw actually throwing hard might, might actually stress your shoulder more, but if we can get you to feel your rib cage open up, feel that hip shoulder separation, then that's hugely important. Cause that's about 80% of your velocity on, on a uh, baseball throw. 
So in turn, now I'll get them to take their focus away from the arm, turn it into their trunk, and then they can get some value out of that, that activity and participate with the team. And so this is something that triggered in my head then. Um, you, you bring up the awareness. He's focusing on these things. What happens when you have an athlete that is almost like hyper aware of their body? I have a couple athletes that I know of specifically, like we almost had to break them out of the everything they did was analyzed to the point where like every movement they had was so robotic that it hurt. Like it hurt, like I mean, <laughs> everything they were thinking, you could tell you could just see that like, I'm supposed to run this. I'm supposed to have my hands here. I'm supposed to feel this. And obviously it's part of it's like, they're thinking about the wrong cues, some of it, but it's generally, they were, they're super hyper aware athletes. What do you, like, how do you approach that type of athlete to where they're not, or to where we're not creating hyper-aware athletes, or is it just because it's the wrong cue? Like you can have a hyper-aware athlete as long as the right cues and right thought process, but what's your approach there? Yeah. Yeah. You get to paralysis by analysis. Yeah. Thing. Um, yeah. I'm guilty of that myself when I do things at times. Um, so I have like very strong beliefs held loosely. That's kind of how I look at it. So I believe this is a great way to learn someone like learn is developing awareness, but if that person is overanalyzing, then we got, we got to change it. Cause that's not, for their habit to overanalyze. So I'm trying to create another option for them to be more, a little bit more automatic. So in turn, I'm then I'm going to create external uh, constraint for them. Not that we don't, I don't do that already, but I might make it a lot more external and tell them just go. So I was working on sprinting the other day with who, with a person who gets, when he incorporates his arms, it gets really mechanical, doesn't get a good counter rotation with his trunk. So then the constraint was we're doing some a skip, I gave him a sandbag to hold on to, took his arms out of it, start and this I was like just skip. And we went and I tried to like let's go skip for distance, go as far as you can. But by him holding the sandbag, it started he started creating counter rotation. Then we put a PVC pipe over his shoulders, so he held that. So now he, is, he doesn't have an arm swing, but he's got a lo- he has longer levers on each side that created more counter road that helped him get the feel of counter rotation. Then at the end, it was just go stay low, go fast, right? So. Um, so I just gave him, I didn't ask him to be super aware of stuff. Like afterward, like he would run, then I would record him. We'd watch how that improved it and what he felt. But then during activity, I gave him pretty basic cues. Um, or I may have someone like a uh, box throw, like if they need to learn how to rotate, I might get, I have, you know, this uh, handbags and I don't need to make them a boxer. Given the bags that likelihood of them hurting their wrists is pretty low. Cause if they're not used to throwing punches, you don't obviously want to sprain anybody's wrists. But I might be like, hey, hit the, like if they hit that bag solidly, it's going to give them external cue back of going like, yeah, that felt good. And he's just like, hey, punch hard, right? Don't don't think about it so much. No, I, I love that. We we do a lot of the same things with our football with the, the hyper like hyper aware athletes. We do the same mm-hmm. thing, and the other part is like um, trying to add in competition too, because that's something where it's yeah. like it's super funny. You talk about like. It's always, it's always the combine athletes that come to us. It's like they, they've been combined out their entire middle school, <laughs> yeah. high school running forties. That's always the combine coach that tell them <laughs> and they have, yeah. think of all these things. And he just tell them to race somebody rather than run by themselves. And as soon as they race somebody, all the combine stuff's out the window and they, 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 they're running faster, smoother. Some guys it, it's a little bit tighter and it's like this, but like usually they self or like self-organize themselves to, to try and win. And that's when it's like, all right, well, let's look, let's look at this. Yeah. Your, your, this is how you run fast for yourself right now. We can change some things. We can do this, but it's not the mechanical robot thing that you were doing before. So like, let, let's kind of try to get that out of our head. Yeah, that's great. And like, or another idea that came, like I might have them do something uh, more like play something like that may not seem related at all to sport, but it's going to make them do break them out of their mold. So like um, even just trying to do like a handstand, right? Like where it's like, the handstand make you a better athlete? Uh, perhaps, maybe, I don't know. Um, it's kind of fun to try and you'll roll around. You'll, you know, you'll, you'll make mistakes. Actually learning how to fall is really good. Um, I mean, I can come up with reasons like it strengthens your shoulder girdle, all these other stuff, but it's so unique to them that it, you can't, they can't really overthink it because if say they haven't done a handstand before they have no reference point to try overanalyze that. I, I like that a lot. Uh, and it's something with the handstands I do too, is we, we just talk about learning and creating movers. Some, some of the cool, I like handstands and cartwheels are two things because yeah. fo- football guys are notorious for sucking at them. <laughs> and two, it gets you the buy-in of once you can teach them how to do that, they get addicted to the learning mechanisms of, mm-hmm. oh, I can learn how to do a handstand. Like what, what can I do next? And my body wasn't capable of doing this before. Now it is, ooh, like 
uh, like almost like a little piece of candy you give them. It's like, Ooh, like what else can I do? What else can I yeah. do? And that, that's where I feel like we really start to get our athletes to buy into what we're doing, buy into the kind of the learning process rather than the, the coaching process. Yeah, I agree. And so that's, uh, again, some of the rolling stuff I do is like, will be unique. Most of the time people, they haven't rolled holding their foot or I'll have people, uh, like call happy baby rolling where they're holding both feet, like a yoga pose, but then they're trying to roll and, uh, to their side and actually do a whole circle with it. My football, which is my football athletes hate you and Austin for that. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like, again, like you look at a global flexion pattern, it helps external rotations going You basically are now making the rib cage, the articulating point of that movement. And so it's really challenging for people, but, uh, one of our other athletes and I were doing like tag through that. He was pretty good at rolling. Um, I'm pretty damn good at that. I'm a short guy, so I can roll pretty well. Uh, and him and I were just trying to tag, do tag by rolling around in circles that way. And so like stuff like that would be, you know, it's fun. It makes a move differently. And then kind of, it, again, it's so unique. You can't overthink it. And so I'm interested before, and maybe there's not, but for the, the sports performance coaches listening right now, we, we, we've addressed rolling, we've addressed crawling and getting on the ground. Um, and we've addressed a little bit of climbing. Is there anything else that you think like you can implement like right away with your athletes or we should be implementing right away with our athletes to kind of get some of these patterns into their daily life that they're kind of missing out on that you see? Yeah. The, uh, we have, we're talking a little bit about our climbing, like obviously the Puros are pretty big on uh, climbing because this is vertical crawling to me. Uh, any sort of different grips using different weights um, besides a barbell it would be huge. So uh, we have some pretty big sandbags trying to even just do a regular, you know, press um, bench press type activity with a sandbag. Brutal. It is it's so much different, right? Yeah. But now you're getting that hand into like, um, say for a football, for a lineman who needs to punch out, right. But the barbell is not that useful for them, right. They're not going to be at 90, 90s, you know, 90 degrees abduction and pressing out, but they're going to be, their elbows are going to be in. They're going to, they're going to need to hit with their palms to control that, whatever the defensive lineman. So if you give them a sandbag to press there, now you're actually, you're going to get better integration because you're going to get a, like a domain effect of the hands, which will usually reflect a domain effect in the diaphragm and the pelvic floor. And they will feel different. They'll go from someone who maybe can bench, you know, 200, 300 pounds. You give them 200, say they can bench 300 pounds. You give them 200 pound sandbag. They're gonna be like, whoa, this is hard. Like harder than benching 315. Um, using the kettlebell, holding an actual bell instead of the, the bar part. Uh, why we like the rock climbing grips so much is doing pull-ups on those. Or even if you, uh, even if you just got, um, you only need a rock climbing wall, but if you got, uh, there's plenty of rock climbing boards that you can install that will have different handholds and it'll change the integration of their trunk dramatically. Uh, and then for me, going back to a little bit before is getting people not to hold in their stomach, not to pull their shoulder back when they're walking, um, to actually let their stomach relax so that we get a reflexive eccentric contraction of the pelvic floor, uh, when they're walking, when they're doing things in general, or living their life in general will make a major impact on them. I love that. Uh, a couple of things that you brought up before you got to the, um, the Corian is the, the, a lot of the hand stuff. That's something that I've noticed a lot with offensive linemen, especially in football players, especially is you start to implement sandbag work, kettlebell work, crawl work, and a lot of the climbing work. And you get to see, first of all, their, their hands aren't, like you said, you had that 300 pound venture grab a hundred pound either, especially the kettlebells, um, but just the, and crawling too. like this dude should have outputs out the butt and you put him yeah. to hold himself in a crawl or you put him to press something where his hands in a different position and his wrist and hand, like the wrist hand complex completely just collapses on him. And then it kind of brings it up. It's like, all right, so what does getting that 300 pound bench to 350 or whatever we want to do? Like, what does that do for you? If it's collapsing on your hand when you're just holding your body. Like, are, are you going to be able to transition that to your punch? Is that really doing you any good in what you want it to do you good in? Yeah. And that's, uh, so reason why I bring up back, bring it back to the core is that if they're, they're benching, pulling their stomach, doing those type of things, they are, they will not have good wrist and hand uh, activation because they are inefficiently stabilizing their trunk, which will, affect the rib cage, which will affect any other mobile joint, like the wrists, like the hips, um, that would be like a relationship that would be a problem. So 
part of the reason why when they go into bear crawl and they would most likely, you know, uh, is that they are not actually integrating their rib cage efficiently enough. So it'll, it'll fatigue the hell out of them. They won't be able to uh, even hold themselves up on bear crawl. But to your point, right, a 350 pound bench press or 405, whatever, you know, you can have a high, high bench press, but if you can't really crawl, is that that useful for you when you have to hit alignment, deep alignment, you know, 70 times in a game? Yeah, exactly. I think we're on the same page there. I'm, I'm geeking out about all this. So um, before uh, before we get to the rapid fire rounds, uh, we talked briefly about, I don't, I don't want to say a cool story, but um, kind of your story that led up to your approach to stress and um, what a stressful situation can lead to. Um, can you dive into that story a little bit and kind of how that has helped your your mindset and your approach to stressful events and how it affects an athlete or how it affects the human organism. About six years ago, um, a group of uh, people broke into my home and uh, kidnapped my girlfriend, um, who's now my wife, held me at gunpoint, tied me up, charged me a ransom. Uh, eventually, she was let go. Um, there's a whole... Well, that's a, the elevator version of it. It's a lot... Uh, pretty traumatic, um, life altering event. Um, part of the reason why I actually moved uh, down to Santa Cruz, um, was to get out of the city where I was, where I was living before, uh, at the time I was 30 and I thought I had, you know, I had a good job, had pretty much had a house, had a lot, a lot of stuff that you traditionally like think like kind of American dream type, uh, and that all got pulled out for me pretty quickly. Um, actually instantaneously. So it was been, you know, I have PTSD from that. Uh, took me a while. I didn't work for six months. Um, and it really made me uh, take some inventory on what's important. So when you go through something like that, you, you lose, uh, you start trimming away a lot of things that are uh, unnecessary. Um, not that like I felt like I was, you know, I was overall doing things pretty well, but it started making me um, a little more open to emotionally than I was before. I used to think I was very much a person who I will handle it on my own. I won't ask for help. Um, I'm capable of doing it. I don't want to burden anyone. Uh, when you go through something that that big, you need you need help. So I'm fortunate. My family and I've really close friends um, have an incredible partner that helped me get through that. In turn, there's a there's PTSD, but there's also post traumatic growth. And so, as humans, we're storytellers. We we tell ourselves we have major events in our lives that we remember, and we can either have a story that negatively impacts us or we can potentially through therapy or my wife and I wrote a book um, through writing, we can reprogram that and maybe take something that's terrible into something that's good. And if we look at like most athletes or most people aren't going to go through what, um, what I went through, but athletes go through something traumatic. Everybody goes through something traumatic. Um, It could be just as much as like getting picked on as a kid or, or being embarrassed at something like being, um, or missing the game winning shot, doing doing poor turnover, having a coach who thinks the best way to motivate you is to beat you down. But we can look. So I look at that. Um, can we take for an athlete? Can or just as because they're all people, right? Um, can can I help them through potentially my experience figure out a way that they can rewrite their own script and maybe live it their own their own self talk. So thing I had to learn big part was. Uh, to have my self-talk be like how I speak to other people. So like most people, I would, I'm much kinder to uh, someone else, um, my athletes or friends than I am to myself. And not that doesn't mean you're not holding yourself accountable to the actions you perform, but it's also giving yourself a little more lead way than I would typically give myself. Um, and then it goes into, uh, we'll probably, we'll talk about in the rapid fire, uh, some books that I can provide them. Um, um, and again, helping them maybe, or I'm sorry, the other thing I would work on is breathing techniques would be another ways to help them potentially control, um, anxiety or how, like, so I, I meditate often, um, and, but try and find accessible ways to do that. So, 
So it's not that they have to meditate for 30 minutes or an hour a day, but can we find two or three minutes to slow down their breath, to be in the moment, um, to start kind of registering outside of the uh, potential panic that can happen or stress that can happen from things that may be going on um, or like the future stresses uh, and be in the present moment. So I use that. I use my breathing techniques a lot, especially when if I, if I'm feeling my anxiety levels go up, I might close my eyes and even for 30 seconds to slow down my breath and to start to get away from um, things steamrolling. So those, those would be kind of uh, real briefly how I would take some of that, that experience and translate to people I work with. Well, I think that's um, so Austin Einhorn actually mentioned or recommended the book awareness to me. Uh, we talked about awareness through this, but oh, the awareness, the actual book, and that's where it's like giving yourself that uh, noticing, like you, you talked about how when, when you feel that anxiety, you just like you take that moment to notice it and grab onto it and focus on it and breathe through it, rather than the ability to or not the, the way of doing it of like, you feel it, but you don't really notice it. And it just kind of runs your life in the background. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot as athletes and coaches is if we as coaches aren't taking the moment to like dissociate from the moment for, uh, to, to pay attention to these things, I just feel like as teachers, we're, we're training athletes that aren't able to do the same thing. They're not able to take that step back from the sport. They're not able to take the step back from even just being an athlete themselves. That's all they are. So when if you just want to, and we're not, you don't even want to take it to life and the, uh, how much it can help you in life. You just want to take it to the sports performance world. You talk about an athlete that has a bad game, misses a shot, um, strikes out in a game, something along those lines. And their identity is so tied to that, that bad play, that, that bad moment to just being an athlete in general, that they're never able to take a deep breath, take that moment and dissociate from it. Then you have an athlete, just sports performance rise that is going to crash from there. And you can talk about physical stuff. We can talk about all these things that you want to, but if we don't really address those moments and there's many coaches out there that don't even do it themselves, then you're going to create a bunch of athletes that are along those same lines. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, so some of it is where I use my breath is actually just to really experience what I'm feeling. So if I'm, um, maybe I'm feeling like a little anxious from, and I can't quite tell why I'll actually spend a few minutes and let myself feel really anxious instead of trying to go like, well, nothing's going on. Right. Like day's fine. I don't know why I'm feeling like this. Um, and trying to suppress it. I'll go like, let me actually process through it. And then I, then from there I can let it go. So if say athlete had a bad game, really let them feel that sucks, right? It sucks to have a bad game and it's okay to go. That's going to affect you for a while, but let's, let's actually go through that whole feeling of it instead of trying to go like, well, it's a bad game, move on to the next one. But the way you move on is actually processing through it and not burying it. Yeah. And so, like yeah. Letting it simmer underneath. Cause uh, example is like, it's your shadow, right? It's still, it's still influencing you. You might not see your shadow, but it's still around you. So you can either become aware of that, uh, of that and how it's affecting you. And then you can deal with it and you can integrate it. Yeah. I love that. that I mean, that, that I geek out about that the entire time when I read, when I read, so Austin had me read, uh, awareness and illusions and those two books. Mm-hmm. That, that, wow. Messed me up. They, they, yeah. they were good ones. Yeah. I saw your quotes of illusions. I was like, Oh yeah. Take off the device. <laughs> I could see, I saw those on your Instagram. All right. Let's, let's transition to rapid fire round. Um, the first one we got is uh, favorite books that you can recommend to people uh, that you think they can get a lot out of. Yeah. So uh, uh, man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl. If, uh, that's like, should be uh, required reading in this country or every country. It's a uh, Viktor Frankl was uh, a survivor of the Holocaust and he writes like uh it's an incredibly powerful book. If um, and he writes from first person point of view, which he even talks about how originally he wasn't going to do that, but he puts himself in that moment. Uh, it's helped me tremendously. I've read it multiple times, or I might read three or four pages, put it down. It's definitely not a book that you're going to speed through because it's some heavy material. But one of his best, I think, one piece I take away from it is um, talks about like uh, trauma or um, sorrow being like a gas where no matter what concentration is, it's going to fill the whole room. So sometimes people, um, they may go like, well, my, like, so if I have a bad game, like that's not that big a deal in the scope of things. Right. So you look at like, you can always find someone who's had it worse. You can look at, if you look at the world as a whole, by right? having a bad game in a sport 
isn't necessarily that worth the terrible thing as far as like uh, the stresses that people deal with um, in the whole, whole scope of things. But understanding that it's still affecting you um, and still a, uh, a challenging situation for that person. So, so I think uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, read it. It's going to, it will have a, I think it'll have a positive impact on, on your, uh, whoever reads that book. And then another book I, I love is uh, Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. So, or anything by Brene Brown is good. Um, that's helped me a lot with, as I referred to before, as, uh, self-talk um, and how actually recognizing that your imperfections are, as the book says, is it actually can be a gift or um, understand that vulnerability is actually a sign of strength when people think a lot of times we're afraid that's weakness, but people view it as a sign of strength. Uh, really helpful book uh, in a, any field, but actually definitely in the performance world. Um, Peak by Anderson Erickson. It's a great uh, talking about uh, deliberate practice. He's um, he's a guy who figured out it was about 10,000 hours to become an expert in anything. Malcolm Glywell kind of, he oversimplified it. So there's, there's more factors, not just 10,000 hours about how you spend those 10,000 hours. So if you want, so in peak, he talks about basically anybody who's like considered prodigy. If you look at their life history, they were kind of set up to um, actually be as good as they were at a certain point. So uh, really good way of figuring out how you can, um, how you can apply that deliberate practice to anything you do and improve any performance. It doesn't matter the, the modality. So it could be playing music, it could be playing football, it could be a coach, it could be anything. Um, and then the final book, uh, Play by Dr. Stuart Brown. Quote that sticks with me from that is the opposite of play is not work. It, the opposite of play is depression. So he looks at play. He thinks we have a, a large play deficit in our, especially with the adults. Um, so you look at kids learn a ton through play. We don't let kids play enough now. You know, uh, but adults stop playing. And what happens to our brain when we're, we're engaged in play is, is, uh, the biochemistry of it, it's incredible, but uh, it'll start making you think of like, yeah, I should have a little more games in my life. Um, so those would be like four books I would recommend. Boom. And do you want to recommend or not recommend, but uh, bring up your book that you have coming out? I just learned about this before the podcast. Oh yeah. So uh, if people are interested in more about um, what happened uh, to me and my wife, it, uh, our book is called Victim F uh, from Crime Suspect, from, I'm sorry, Victim F from Crime Victims to Suspects to Survivors. Uh, it will be coming out June 8th. Uh, it can be b- bought on a major platform, Amazon, um, Walmart, Target, any of those things. So uh, uh, yeah, June 8th release on that. Awesome. Uh, and then next question, and this is one that I really like asking guys like yourself to hopefully drive this rabbit hole of uh, community that I'm trying to build. Um, who's the guest that you think we should have on the podcast? Yeah, uh, uh, Andrew Huberman is a professor from Stanford and uh, neurobiology and ophthalmology. He has a, um, great, definitely follow him on Instagram. He has a podcast. He goes into neuroplasticity or brain's ability to change really good practical information. Even, um, when I've been applying is this game, like sunlight early in the day, um, being outdoors to get start setting your uh, circadian rhythm and trying to watch a sunset. Uh, thing that he showed is like if even if you watch the sunrise or sunset through a window it's, it takes 50 times longer for that to process into your brain because it's getting filtered through the glass than it is to be outside tons of tons of good information awesome teacher oh yeah that, that that sounds right up my alley i love that yeah and the last question of the podcast um and this is when all of this teaching is over uh what do you kind of want your legacy to be yeah that was that's probably i saw that was a tough one uh i don't really I don't know. I don't really think about my legacy. I try to keep stuff really process oriented because can't control outcomes. Um, maybe it's what I went through before, you know, your life can change pretty quickly. Um, so I just try to, you know, keep the process, uh, try to have a high quality process and then see what that happens. But I hope people, I guess I'll put it this way. I hope people think about me as, uh, someone who try to prove the world through movement and empathy. 
Boom. Well, yeah. thank you for being on. This this was awesome. We we got into some stuff here that I'm ready. I'm ready to go back and listen to this. <laughs> yeah, man. I appreciate it. Uh, a lot of fun. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.